The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Well, welcome to Holy Cross. My name is James, and I am not Pete, but he's um, away on vacation. Um, and so I have the opportunity to preach and stand before you today. Um, so thankful for that. So if you're new with us, I want to just introduce you to a few things. Um, we have these cards that Pete's been you know, promoting, and we want to just continue to push these because these are such good ways for us to get to know you. And so this is the blue one. The blue one is a welcome card. If you are new to Holy Cross, we would love to get to know you and have you become plugged into our community. And so fill out the blue one. And then this gray, black one, darker one, this is for prayer. And we want to be a church that prays and we want to be a church that lives and thrives off of prayer. And so we encourage you guys to fill out these cards for prayer requests that we can pray for you. And there's a little box for an elder to follow up with you as well. And so we want to just let you know about those. Also, just a few important announcements, officer nominations um, that are ongoing right now. So if you are a member of Holy Cross, we encourage you to participate as we go through this new season of um, raising up new leaders and um, nominating elders and deacons. And so if you want to learn more and participate, you can go to holycrosstucson.com slash nominations. And then we have the Family Sunday in a few weeks, um, and that, that'll be a time where we can all worship together. Kids, um, there's a nice announcement on the website, so you can take, that, take a look at that announcement video that Peter Zimmer prepared. Um, but that Family Sunday will have an opportunity for all of us to worship together, even with the children's uh, four and up. And so we'll be all in here kind of jam-packed together, but we'll be worshiping together and um, really just bringing to life the picture of the household of God. And so it'll be a beautiful sight to see. Um, and then we'll all head over to our location afterwards. There'll be free lunch and family activities and things like that. And so we encourage you to join us for that, mark your calendars, and set that time aside. Now we want to dive into the Word of God here today. We're in this series of the person and work of Jesus from Garden to City. And we just, I, I'm so excited to get to participate in it so, so much because usually I'm preaching like once, maybe twice a series, but I get to preach back to back this week and next week. And so I'm looking forward to being able to do that. Um, and so why don't we turn to the Word at this time? Our passage today comes to us from Hebrews chapter 2, verse, we're going to read from verse 9 through 18. So you follow along with me. But we see him who for a little while who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, 
I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that though death he, through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the word of God. So I moved out here four or five months ago. And I often call home to try to FaceTime with them, to regularly just keep in touch. Um, and I'm not sure if you're familiar, if you have family elsewhere, but it's a long-distance relationship. And I don't know if you're familiar with long-distance relationships. I'm in many of them since all of my friends and family that I've known in the past that I've grown up with, they're all in Maryland. And so the dynamic of these conversations is particularly with my parents, I want to focus on that. It's, it's, it's like, oh, I haven't seen you in ages, and so let me tell you about everything. And so it's like you're trying to talk over one another and trying to tell your story rather than listening. And, and so before I can tell them anything that's going on with my life, you know, they're taking over the com conversation, they're commandeering the com conversation to just everything that's going on in Maryland. Oh, we bought a new car and your cousin is doing this and your uncle is doing that. And they're just trying to give me updates and trying to fill me in and stay connected to the family. And you know, I don't want to paint, my picture, paint a picture of my parents as villains or anything like that. Um, because what I'm about to say is that there is a self-centered nature about the way that we interact with one another even with the purest of motivations, with my parents even. And why I bring that up is because we just read the Word of God. We're here, we're gathered together to worship. We're gathered here to, to open up the Word of God and see His story. And we're telling the story of God from creation to restoration, from garden to city. And we're taking the story which we've, sort of hijacked and placed ourselves at the center. And we're attempting to reorient ourselves in a way that humbles us and reminds us again that Jesus is ultimately the subject and the object. He's the author and the protagonist. And so he's at the center of our story, not us. The Bible, moving from garden to the city, is not ultimately a story about how sinners get into heaven. That's not the main point of the, of the Bible. But it's ultimately a story about a gracious God through Jesus transforming a sinful people through the, spirit, through the Spirit and bringing them out of bondage into a new life with Him. And so there is a focus on Jesus yet again. He is at the center of our story. And even in our text, from what we, and even in our text, Jesus is the focus and we want to focus on that today as we see the story of Jesus from garden to city. A little bit about the book of Hebrews, just to give, a, give us a little context on where we are. Um, from, what, from what we know today, the author is unnamed. 
but the letter's addressed to an unnamed but early church, it seems to be, and it seems to be particularly aimed at an audience of a Jewish background, Jewish, Jewish ethnic background. Um, and so these early Christian Jews wanted to return to their own ways. They were brought out of this Jewish community into, the, into becoming a follower of Jesus, becoming a disciple of Jesus. They've changed their lives. They've left their old lives behind to follow Jesus. And now that they are facing persecution from every level, they wanted to return back. They wanted to turn away from Christ and go back to their old ways. I mean, it's understandable because they face persecution literally from every level, from the state, from the government. They constantly found ways to oppress them. They constantly found ways to just corner the newly banded Christians that were rising up. They seemed like a threat. And even though everyone seems to be polytheistic in that time, in that, in that um, area, well, if you're a Christian, that's not okay. And just like that, they, f- they faced persecution from the state, which trickled down to the way that they were perceived in society. And so the society was, was persecuting them, oppressing them, cornering them for being Christian. And that trickles down into their own households, where they come from ethnic and religious backgrounds of Jewish heritage. And they were called to leave that behind because when the Jewish family saw these family members taking up Jesus and following after him, they thought that that was the wrong message. And so they, they were disinherited, they were shamed, and they were, they were abandoned completely by their family. And so imagine having to leave behind everything that shapes your life. You know, it's, it's easy to say, oh, well, it's a good thing to follow Jesus, so they did the right thing. But looking back, imagine having to leave behind every experience, every understanding of religion, every framework of religion that you have, and the life that you lived, having to leave that behind. And for many of us that grew up in Christian homes, that means your family, that means your church community, that means all the people you've grown to call your brothers and sisters, that means this nice building with the air conditioning, that means the speakers, the light bulbs, the guitar, the piano, all the nice amenities that we have as a, as a Christian, Christian in 2018. God forbid that you would have to worship secretly in someone's attic, you know, with no piano, with no worship leader, no music, because you have to keep quiet because you're scared. And so it's this transformation of leaving behind everything that you were doing one way and going about it a completely different way for fear of your life, for fear of persecution and oppression. Fortunately, none of us have to go through that and experience that. And we have all those things. We have great people here. We have the music. We have the facilities. But... The Hebrews writer is saying, there's something better that we can give to you as Christians. You've left all this behind. Don't turn back now because we have something better, something greater. Look to Jesus. It's really challenging for me as I was thinking through it, and I'm sure it is for us, that to grasp really what the early Christian Jews were experiencing. 
you know, it was all this opposition plus the fact that their former way was all that they knew. They were pioneers. They were discovering everything and they were not really sure what to do. And they had to become disciples of Jesus, paying the cost to become that disciple, dying to oneself. And so this Hebrew writer is giving them a vital message of encouragement at a critical juncture in Christian history. Jesus is the great high priest who is greater than their past. The writer is reminding them that they have not lost anything. You have not lost, but you have gained a great and tremendous reward beyond your understanding, beyond your imagination, because of Jesus. And the fact that the Hebrews writer, not just in our text, but throughout the book of Hebrews, is emphasizing this great high priest, Jesus Christ, you know, re really grasp the significance of that because the role of a great high priest, the high priest in the Jewish temple, was a tremendous role. It was the high priest who offered up sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people. It was the high priest who stood before God and God and man, God and the Israelites, to mediate between the sinner and the Holy One. It was the high priest who would enter the holiest of holies, holy of holies, each year on the Day of Atonement to go before God to seek atonement for all the people to offer up sacrifice of blood and incense to seek God's forgiveness and to say that that's, you might have believed that all your life, but Jesus is something better. Something better has come before you. The most perfect manifestation of the high priest, that really is for them a tr truly a call to die to your old self and to live looking to Jesus and his ministry because Jesus' ministry fulfills their needs and so much more. It restores them to new life. And so there are three aspects of Jesus' ministry as the great high priest that I want to observe today. Jesus' ministry to his people as the great high priest is one that is sacrificial, one that is worshipful, and one that is ever-present. Verse 10 of our text speaks of God like this. It was fitting that he, God, for whom, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's the description of God that we have. And this goes back to the key idea of our series, that this isn't really about me. This isn't really about you. The Bible is not given to us to tell us how precious we are. God does think you're precious, don't worry. I think you're precious too, as our church members. But I'm not belittling that. But the Bible is necessarily given to us to show us truth about God that gives Him the glory because all things exist for God. And the second idea in that passage we see here is that is intertwined with the first idea. All things exist for God. And because all things exist for God, um, all things exist, well, not because, I'm sorry, I mixed that up. All things exist for God, and all things exist because of God. Um, and so, again, we see the idea that we've been I've been talking about, that God is the author and creator. He not only intends all things for him, but he is the one put, that put all things into motion. And so he is always intended 
to use all of creation to tell his story. And this brings us to an idea that our text emphasizes multiple times in the few short verses that we read, that Jesus, Jesus himself is fully human. He became, he became flesh and blood, as verse 14 points out for us. He became like us, and he partook of the same things, and this included his submission and obedience to the Father, because all things exist for God, and all things exist because of God. And so the key idea here is that when we talk about the great high priest and his ministry being sacrificial, one of the key ideas is that sacrifice is not leftovers. Sacrifice is not spare change. Sacrifice and the inherent definition of that word denotes a loss of something, perhaps a loss of a physical or emotional wholeness a loss of comfort, a loss of financial security. Now, this doesn't mean recklessness in sacrifice. And we can go into another time about stewardship and managing what God has given to us well and wisely. But even in our giving to a church, there is a sacrifice of giving up some financial freedom that could otherwise be used for future plans, that could otherwise be used for more purchasing power in on prime day that's tomorrow by the way Um, but sacrifice means self-loss for the gain for the greater gain of someone else for something else and Jesus in perfect obedience obedience that was demanded of Adam in the garden obedience that was demanded of all of Israelites priests all of their kings and prophets and all the people who identified themselves with God Jesus demonstrates the perfect obedience that so many others could not, that so many other human beings could not. And the cost of Jesus' obedience, as we know, was unfathomably great. And Paul tells us in the letter to the Philippians, Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8, it says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Jesus' obedience meant a sacrifice of his holy position beside the Father, albeit we know it's temporary. But the pain and suffering that this separation from the Father it leads our Lord to shout these words from the, from, from the cross, these words from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we see there is a deep, deep sense of loss, a deep sense of suffering that comes with his sacrifice. But verse, tells, verse 10 tells us, though, that this suffering has a purpose, that the obedience of God's will doesn't, lead to utter chaos but it leads to a fulfillment of a plan of his plan and the hebrews writer tells us that the plan is to make the foundation uh, the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering and so the plan is to make jesus perfect through suffering let's dwell on that a little bit what does that mean 
Because the first thing that I asked, and you might be asking, is, I thought Jesus was perfect. I thought that's the whole point. Yeah, he is. Because he's God, and because he's a person of the Trinity, that is God Almighty. But the way that God brings about salvation, as we can see, is not from way up above. He doesn't reach down from up above, but he condescends to a human level. And as Paul says, Jesus emptied himself, took the form of a servant, and became human. And as we know, humans, us, humans are inherently insufficient vessels for a perfect God, a holy God. Humans are prone to temptation, as we saw in the garden, as we see in our everyday lives. Humans are prone to fall to that temptation. We sing, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. These words we sing because we are prone to these things. But to say that we're prone is, I think, an understatement because rather we're inclined to sin. We look for it because it pleases us. Humans are prone to it. And we, instead of being cautiously prone, we go towards it because it gives us a taste of temporary pleasure. It gives us a small fulfillment that that could fulfill a part of our lives. And rather than having God's way, which leads us to eternal fulfillment, we seek our own ways. And so when the text tells us that Jesus is made perfect through suffering, it points to the reality of brokenness in human life and that Jesus was willing and humble enough to choose obedience and the suffering that comes with it in order to fulfill God's will. And so Jesus is perfected through suffering. And so the unavoidable part that suffering is a part of Jesus' appointment to the office of the high priest. God requires it. He demands it. Why? Because God is just. And God is necessarily just because ultimately his law, what he demands, what he plans, is good. And God must be just in order to uphold his good and perfect will and law. And so Jesus is made perfect through suffering because he's able to endure the brokenness of this world in order to overcome it and to show us a better way. And it's so significant that we take this point that the Hebrews writer is emphasizing to us. For this purpose, Jesus became one of us. Jesus identifies himself with us so that he would be our representative He would be the founder of our salvation. And one commentator translates that word, the founder of salvation, and he translated it as champion of salvation, that Jesus is our champion. And just to clarify, we're not talking champion like the Golden State Warriors are the champions, but we're thinking more of champions in, you know, perhaps the Middle Ages where there's trial by combat and you can... You can decide a legal battle with a real physical battle to the death. Um, And if you are unable, if you are weak, you're able to name a champion to fight in your place, to take your place. And not only do they take your place, but when they die, 
if they died, then you would pay the penalty for that sin. And so this idea of champion, someone that goes for you and goes to battle for you, um, that's, that's the idea of champion that we're looking at. And Jesus, to champion our salvation, has become one of us so that he could represent us, he could be like us, and that he takes our place in our judgment. Judgment, by the way, that the trial's already over. The judgment's already passed. There is no trial. We're sinful. We're bad. And that's already decided. But even in the midst of that, Jesus takes our place and takes the penalty of sin and death on our behalf. Partly I'm thankful that that's a foreign idea that I had to explain that to you, that trial by combat doesn't exist anymore because that's such, so vicious and brutal. But the idea of Jesus being our champion should not be foreign to us. The idea of depending on someone who is greater, who is better for our fate, especially in someone who is more than that. He's perfect. We sing that. We say that. We read that on a daily basis. And to depend on a perfect son of God who became man so that he could win on our behalf. We cannot lose sight of that. And so Jesus is our champion. And so in this way, Jesus' ministry as a great high priest is sacrificial to us. Sacrificial for him. For him. He has to lose something. Jesus obeys where we could not. And he suffers and endures in a way that we never could. And he represents us as a champion of our salvation because he's perfected through suffering. And so he's able to go before us and act in a priestly way, in this way, that he atones for our sins through his sacrifice rather than a sacrifice. The next aspect, the second aspect, is Jesus' ministry as a great high priest and that this, this aspect is that it's worshipful. Here at Holy Cross, we make it a point to say each week, that as we begin our worship time, that we worship because God initiates with us, that worship begins with God. And one of the ways that He has initiated with us is just by bringing us together. And that's not just in, our, in the room here today, all the, you know, the real Christians, all the real super faithful Christians, right? Um, but that's just not in this room or just the church community at, at large at Holy Cross, but the body of Christ, the global church, the capital C corporate church. He unites us to call us his brothers and sisters. And so we, just, we see this in our text as he identifies himself with the children of God. At the end of verse 11, it says, He's not ashamed to call them, that being us, Brothers and sisters, just as Jesus takes on flesh, to, flesh and blood to become like us, he continues down that path of obedience and sacrifice to call us his brothers and sisters and so that we can call him our brother. In this way, Jesus stands with us and for us as he stands between God and man. And as he stands there, he, he steps into the covenantal relationship between God and man. He's not an observer, but he steps into it where once God declared that his people should be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that we should be his people and he shall be our God. 
says in Exodus 19. And Jesus stands in that relationship in order to reconcile and restore that relationship. On one hand, he appeals to God. He goes to God as our older brother, as our champion, as our representative, not to say that we've done anything right or well, but he goes before us to correct our own wrongdoing and appease the Father's wrath. And then on the other hand, he turns to us to preach and teach us the truth of God in order that God's people would, in fact, live like God's people. And in this way, before the church body that he has unified, he is worshipful as the great high priest. And we see that Jesus ultimately fulfills the role of a perfect pastor and a worship leader. And, you know, we talk about perfect pastor. I think Pete does a pretty good job of a pastor, right? And, you know, he's no Jesus, but he does a pretty good job. And I guess all this is being recorded, so maybe I should say more nice things. (laughs) But he preaches the word week to week, faithfully, and he stays committed to the work of sharing the gospel of truth. And he teaches the word in multitude of settings, whether it's our summer life groups, whether it's membership class, whether it's leadership training, and so on. In fact, any great pastor that you can name, I would hope that they would be so utterly dependent on God's word that you would see this in every aspect of their ministry. And the Hebrews writer frames Jesus' pastoral ministry to us so brilliantly. He mentions how Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers in verse 11. Then he goes on in verse 12 to cite a passage of Scripture that says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That's straight from Psalm 22. And where else do we see Psalm 22? For a Jewish audience that have grown up in the temples, this connection would have been easier to see because these are the words that Jesus shouts from the cross from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that same psalm, you see lament, turn to praise and worship, that it's followed by, that it's not just lament for lament's sake. It's not just crying out to God and saying, why have you forsaken me? But it turns to say, God, you are good, and I will shout and sing your praise. And so he preaches and teaches the truth to us, to his brothers, just as a pastor should. And in that same light, Jesus also becomes our worship leader, the constant leader of our songs who gathers and leads his people to sing his praises. And it says that he is in the midst of the congregation. And so he sings together with the church. He leads us to worship. And as the worship director here at Holy Cross, that's my hope and desire for the church, that each week that we gather, we're not responding to the great music, but that we're responding to God's call for us to worship Him, that we be led by Christ to enter into a time that our eyes, our minds, our hearts, our ears are all fixated on Jesus and nothing else. This is why we sing lyrics that are fixated on Christ, 
This is why we sing lines like, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea that a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It's Jesus who goes before us, sacrifices himself to a life of suffering and separation from the Father, and it's Jesus who gathers us after that to unite us to him and to lead us in a time of worship in his preaching, teaching, singing, and so on. And thirdly, Jesus' ministry as the great high priest is ever-present with us. And one way that we see that is that he tells us as much in the Great Commission as he sends his disciples to go and make disciples. He says, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And here throughout our text, we've observed one sort of paradigm of the relationship that Jesus promises to us, that Jesus is our brother. He identifies himself as our brother. And look back to verse 11. It says, He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call us brothers. The writer is saying, Jesus, Jesus is the one who sanctifies. And we are the ones being sanctified. And yet, even though there is a distinction, Jesus is choosing to identify himself with us and that he's initiated this relationship by becoming human so that he could be like us. Verse 14 says he partook of the same things, those, those things being flesh and blood. And we share in that to say that we're, that Jesus, Jesus shares in that to say that we're cut from the same cloth, that we're same we're human. We're fully human. We're made of flesh and blood. And verse 16 shows us that he had to fully identify with us and become human because he wasn't here to save angels. He, was, he came to save the offspring of Abraham. And so then verse 17 says he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus, becoming like us, being made a man, this story is unlike any other sort of deity or God that the world could come up with. That's unlike any God-to-man relationship that we could imagine that such a mighty being chooses to deal with his subjects by becoming like them, even lower than them, to suffer and to face the same trials that we faced so that he could be our champion and take our place. When he has suffered and tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted, as verse 18 tells us. And so he becomes our brother who is with us, who is by our side, who is pictured in this intimate relationship with us. And, you know, not all of us have the best relationship with our siblings, perhaps. But Jesus, in his perfection, Jesus, in his his love for us, 
is the older brother who initiates the relationship, who comes down to us, who constantly reaches to us to make that connection, to make that relationship. And not only does he just serve that single role of brother, but he also counsels us and mediates on our behalf. Verse 18 talks about this idea and expresses that Jesus is able to help us because he's went through the same things, because he's been in our shoes. And I think that's an interesting idea because in many Christian counseling circles or even just counseling in general, we're taught to show empathy towards another person rather than sympathy. And sometimes we mix up the two a lot. Uh, But empathy can be summed up as feeling with someone, whereas sympathy is feeling for someone as if you've already been there and done that. Sympathy is like internalizing someone else's problems to yourself and processing it through your own experiences. But empathy, you're drawing that boundary. You understand that you are two distinct people going through two distinct lives. And with that boundary, you're attempting to gain their perspective from the outside as to not intrude on someone's grief. And sympathy is like giving a response of silver lining to say, at least it's not as bad as whatever. But empathy is understanding that no response is going to fix a tragedy. No response that you can give will magically fix what caused that grief. No response will magically give life to someone that's passed away. Nothing can be said sufficiently to comfort a wife in her miscarriage. But empathy is just saying, thank you for sharing. I'm here to listen. I'm here to be with you. It's walking alongside that person, knowing our own limitations, understanding our own limitations, simply because we're not that person. We don't know what they're going through to the deepest level. And I say all that not to give a crash course on counseling or anything like that, but to say that even the best counselors of this world, we, we fall, they, they fall short, and there's no answers for some tragedies. There's no answers that we could give to comfort someone at a specific time in their life. And to safeguard the relationship, we set up these boundaries to say, we've studied the emotions and grief, and we want to bring you along slowly. We want to walk alongside you. And so we look to Jesus, our counselor and our mediator, because he seems to say he's been in our shoes and he understands what is going on. But Jesus is able to help those who are being tempted because he himself has suffered when he is tempted. He's perfectly able to bear our burdens, both from an external empathetic sense and a sympathetic sense, because he has lived that life to its perfection, to what it was intended to be. And what he promises to us is a perspective of kingdom. He promises to us that he will fill our lives with hope, that we look forward to something else that is coming, that he will give us new life and restore peace in our hearts that surpasses all understanding. Jesus is realigning our perspective, not to look to earthly kingdoms, not to look to earthly fulfillment, but to the kingdom that is to come, Because when Jesus' kingdom is fully established, he says he will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. 
and the former things have passed away because he is making all things new. And so Jesus, as our counselor and mediator, not only walks alongside us and not only fills us with peace now, temporarily, but he gives us something eternal and forever. Jesus is our ultimate prize and our reward. A life with him is the goal of our lives here on earth. And it's this truth that makes Jesus' promise all the more significant. He's given us victory. He declared it is finished. And he promises that he will be with us always. And in our text today, we see that he will be with us as our brother. And so that is, those, those are the roles of a great high priest, our, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's sacrificial, he's worshipful, and he's ever-present. He sacrifices himself to be the champion of our salvation. He brings us into new life with him and calls us his brothers and sisters. He leads us to respond to the Lord in worship, and he constantly is present with us through all of that. What's more is that verse 14 tells us that Jesus, through death, has destroyed the one who has the power of death. He reverses the role that death has in our lives. Where before Christ, death was something to fear. Death was the end of life as we know it. But after Christ, after his victory, after his death and his resurrection, death itself is no longer anything to fear. It becomes the entryway through which we are resurrected, through which we receive new life and are ushered into the new kingdom. God destroys our fear of death and changes our course dramatically. Under sin and death, we're headed for a lifelong slavery to the evil one. But through Christ's work of salvation, we're set free from that bondage and we're given life to live eternally with him. Jesus, the high priest, gives us reason for our worship through his sacrifice. He gives us direction for our worship as our priest and as our leader. And he gives us power for our worship through his constant presence with us. And so as a church, let's continue to look to Jesus in our personal worship here today, throughout the week, and in our corporate worship week to week as we move as God's people. Let's pray.